Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of What About the Canadians? My name is Ashley. And my name is Shauna, and we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season, we will be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. And more specifically, we'll be examining the battles that, that the Canadians served in. All right, let's jump in. So when Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie were assassinated by Serbian nationalist Gavrilo Princip on June 28, 1914, the news certainly didn't make the front page of the Canadian papers. And really, few Canadians could have predicted the ripple effect this event would create across Europe, let alone draw Canada into what we now call the Great War. Now, in 1914, Canada was still a young country, building itself as both a modern industrialized nation and an agricultural powerhouse. Between 1900 and 1912, Canada benefited from an influx of foreign investment and the export of its resources on the international market. Now, with prosperity came a rapid change in population growth through immigration. The population of Canada increased from 5.3 million to over 7.2 million between 1901 and 1911, attracting many young people looking for new opportunities. Now, the prairies appealed to many experienced American and Eastern European farmers looking for cheap land and laborers looking for work on the expanding rail systems or the forestry and mining industries. On the other hand, Ontario and Quebec attracted the majority of immigrants due to the diversity of job opportunities and demand for unskilled labor created through commercial development. Now, this included many British immigrants because, according to what I've read, rural agrarian life for them was just simply too hard. (laughs) (laughs) I read that in some cities, like people would actually put up signs in their windows saying like, no Englishmen need to apply because apparently they were a a bit demanding and a little arrogant. fit in i think some people had a hard time going rural or or in the city life but i found that quite hilarious (laughs) Um, they're too posh i guess yeah totally (laughs) so while most immigrants flocked to the cities canada was still largely a small town rural nation so only about 1.5 million canadians were living in the 10 largest cities in 1911 so, Shauna, do you know, can you guess what the three biggest cities were in 1911? Uh, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. Oh, you're so close. I'm impressed you got Montreal first. It was Montreal. Well, it's so old. It makes sense. I guess so. It was Montreal, Toronto, and Winnipeg. Winnipeg? Really? <laughs> yeah, Winnipeg. Never would have guessed that one. I didn't read into it, but it must have been some central hub in the prairies. It was probably to do with the railroad or something. But yeah. yeah, wow. I, th- I thought that was quite, quite funny. Huh. Um, so from that population, unexpected, or I mean, I should say, um, expectedly, fifty-four percent of people were British, twenty-eight and a half percent were French, five point five percent were German, and one point eight were Austro-Hungarian. Um, 
which um spoiler alert it's not <laughs> my, good for them it doesn't end them. well for them <laughs> no. they probably are about to face some rough times yeah um i also found an estimate that indigenous population at the time was about less than 10 percent uh, so just to give you an idea on the average cost of living, uh, male farmers made about 35 bucks a month. So that would be about $758 today. Wow, that's absolutely nothing. That's right. But women farmers made or farm laborers made 1881. So obviously the idea of equal pay for equal work hasn't quite made it there yet. <laughs> no, that takes a little while. <laughs> I think it's still in the process, actually. <laughs> However, if you were a railway conductor, you were doing not too bad because you were making $102 a month. So that wow. was the place to be. So yeah. I was looking at the 1911 census and my great-great-grandfather, Ferdinand Lacombe, made $25 a month as a laborer in Ontario. Wow. He didn't was make, poor. Didn't make a lot of money. No. He had lots of kids, though. Well, that that's <laughs> always great when you make no money. You got to pop right. out a lot of kids. That's free labor, though. That is being smart. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, in terms of cost, rent was about, could be about $20 a month on average, but a loaf of bread was 60 cents and a carton of milk was 53 and the government was operating at a surplus of 163 million, which is something we cannot say today. No, <laughs> different <laughs> economies. Different of that economy. Time. They were doing not too bad. McLean's magazine wrote that a mad could come to Canada penniless and walk out a millionaire, but that wasn't true for the majority of people. Many people came to Canada with nothing, and whether you lived in the city or in a rural community, you suffered from poverty until you could retain a good paying job. On top of that, not only were you trying to get accustomed to a new land, you encountered people from a variety of cultures, and sometimes that just came with conflict. I'm not really gonna talk about that here. Um, it's not the point of this episode. But I just wanted to bring to your attention that Canada wasn't necessarily this happy mosaic of people coming together that we were sometimes taught to believe in school. Um, favoritism was certainly given to men of British descent. I mean, let's remember at that time, women didn't even have the right um, to vote. And even comparatively speaking, you would maybe expect the French in Quebec to have lived fairly prosperously, um, especially since they had a decent industrial economy at the time. Um, but overall, too, they were employed in some of the poorest jobs. So come 1913, Canada did hit a mini recession um, as foreign investment and demand for goods um, in the international market began drying up and employment rates, unemployment rates were on the rise. But the concerns of the average uh, Canadian obviously would be put on hold in the summer of 1914. Summer of 1914 is, of course, when the First World War began. The war lasted between 1914 and 1918. And as Ashley said, um, it started with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand by Gavrilo Princip. And this was in Sarajevo. Princip was from Serbia and he was a Serbian nationalist and he was part of a group that didn't like what Austro-Hungaria was doing to Serbia. They were trying to annex it basically. 
So Franz Ferdinand was in Sar- Sarajevo and he was doing a parade through the streets. He was visiting and this group decided this was their chance. So there was a first assassination attempt while they, while Fr- Ferdinand and his wife were in their carriage. There was a bomb thrown, but the driver of the carriage saw it and sped up and got away. And it actually ended up destroying the second carriage. And there were some seriously wounded men in there. Um, the escape attempt took them to the town hall reception that was originally planned. Ferdinand and Sophie got out and he decided that he, instead of staying the whole day there, they did finish their reception there, but instead of staying the whole day there, Ferdinand decided he wanted to visit the hospital where the victims had take, had been taken. So Governor General, I'm going to try with this name, probably not going to get it right, Oscar Podurek decided the route should be changed to a straight one directly to the hospital rather than going through the city center. But the driver wasn't informed about that and nobody told him and he ended up taking a wrong turn and had to back up. And it turned out that one of the plotters was at the cafe where the carriage stopped and he took his opportunity to follow through with the assassination and this was Princip. And he fatally shot Fernand and Sophie and they died en route to the governor's residence. Man, that's some bad luck. I know. Like, <laughs> like he just happened to be Had sitting to... <laughs> at that cafe. No kidding. It was meant to happen, I guess. Fate wasn't on his side that day. So because of all this, Austria-Hungary was really mad. And they wanted revenge. And this was Franz Ferdinand's father that was in charge. Um, they wanted revenge. And they sent a list of demands to Serbia because Princip was Serbian. And they assumed or they wanted to believe that it was on behalf of the government. So this is where Germany comes in. Germany gives Austria-Hungary a blank check. And you might remember that. I remember this pretty well from my high school history classes. I remember the blank check, but I could never quite place what it actually meant. Oh, totally. There's a few words like you come across with like World War history that you're like, I remember that from high school because I remember I had to know that for a test. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't know what it was. I don't know what it means anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So Germany gives Austria-Hungary this blank check. And basically they say, whatever you want to do, we'll back you up. We're giving you unlimited support in your conflict with Serbia. And then the Russians come in. The Russians had duty to protect the Slavic nations, including Serbia. So when Germany demanded a peace accord with Russia and it wasn't answered, Germany declared war on them. The same with France. They considered themselves allies, Russia and France did. And since France was silent on the matter, Germany also declared war on France two days later. There was also an alliance between France and Britain and Russia and Britain. But that didn't automatically bring Britain into the war, but France turned to them to support for support and asked them to help out. But it wasn't until Germany invaded neutral Belgium on their way to France that Britain gave their ultimatum to Germany, reminding them of the Treaty of 1839, which guaranteed Belgium's neutrality. If they didn't retreat, Britain would declare war as well. Germany didn't answer by midnight on August 4th, and so Britain entered the war. And so... Then Canada did as well, being a dominion of Great Great Britain. So August 4th, Canada's in the war. 
Poor Canada. We yeah, we didn't have a choice. <laughs> we were officially at war. But since we were a self-governing dominion, Canada could decide what to what extent they offered support to the war. They were in it, but they didn't have to send troops. They didn't have to really get into it all that much. Um, but... Um, although there was some choice, Governor General Field Marshal His Royal Highness, the Duke of Connaught, sent a wire to Britain stating that if unhappily war should ensue, the Canadian people will be united in a common resolve to put forth every effort to make every sacrifice necessary to ensure the integrity and maintain the honor of our empire. So that was pretty clear. Canada yeah, was going to send troops. I don't think there was any question. No. So Prime Minister Borden and his cabinet agreed to Britain's request for Canada to provide 25,000 troops. The government also passed the War Act measures, or sorry, the War Measures Act. This gave it the authority to do whatever it thought necessary for the security, defense, peace, order, and welfare of Canada. Canada seemed to be enthusiastic about joining the war effort, and lots of people, not just Canadians, expected the war to be over by Christmas, so it didn't seem like that big of a deal. And in the first two weeks, Canada had over 32,000 recruits, even though the standing army on day one was only 3,100 men. Within two months, the first Canadian Exp Expeditionary Force, or the CEF, was on its way to the training grounds in England. In the beginning, Canadians rushed to the recruitment offices. They could even be picky with who they took. The recruitment off officers turned down tons of people looking to enlist. In 1914, when they were first starting, every man had to go through a strict medical exam. The soldiers had to be over five foot three and in between 18 and 45 years old with healthy teeth, arched feet, and good eyesight. When the men that were missing teeth were turned down, they, they were reportedly to say that they wanted to shoot the Germans, not bite them. <laughs> and of course, black and Asian Canadians weren't invited to enlist. And it's not even like they weren't invited to enlist, enlist. They weren't allowed to. Because racism was rampant in Canada at the time. You touched on that a little bit, Ash. And the only exception for that, for non-white Canadians enlisting, was the First Nations men. They weren't, at first, actively sought out, but they let them enlist because of their special skills. They thought that they would be really great at sniping and scouting, so they let them join on. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's great. And I'm sure a lot of these First Nations people were like, yeah, I don't know about that at all. I've never been a sniper, but sure, I want to yeah, go fight. So That would be interesting. I didn't read into what the motivations were of the First Nations people to join the war. No, I didn't either. That might be an interesting side episode to do, maybe. Yeah, we'll have to <laughs> check it out. So the general public was supportive, and they called it a just war, and they were proclaiming that British victory was inevitable, and they were right behind all the flags. Of course, though, the majority of Canadians were Anglo-Saxon, and either recent immigrants or first-generation Canadians with par parents born in England. So the ties to the motherland were strong. And even French Canadians were in favor of the war in the beginning and lined up to enlist. In the papers, there was talks of parties in the streets on August 5th. 
The Calgary Herald reported that in Lethbridge, there were skyrockets galore, parades in the streets, and bands playing until after 1 a.m. Ooh. Ooh, yeah, it was a big party. <laughs> party time. <laughs> and the Calgary Herald on August 6th said there had an article saying that Calgary planned to raise a force of 500 to 1,000 men, and we're looking to raise funds to equip those that enlisted. And in Montreal, there were crowds in the street singing La Mar... I'm going to mess this word up because I don't <laughs> speak French. La Marseillaise and Rule Britannia. And they had parades and impromptu speeches and there was so much excitement. But despite the excitement in the Montreal streets, a large amount of French Canadians were still reluctant about joining the war effort. They had a little connection to France, since so many families had been in North America for well over 100 years. And they had an even smaller connection to Britain. In the first contingent sent to Britain, the French Canadians only made up 3.5% of over the 33,000 troops. Yeah, that was de- that was partly deliberate too, though. Um, I read that the Minister of Militia wasn't so keen on having French soldiers Ah, you got stories about him. And and the, I do. Um, <laughs> in the army. And he kind of suppressed the French arm, uh, not armies, but, you know, Enlisties. soldiers or, or listies somewhat a little bit at first. Uh, so many of the first recruits were English, of course, and they belonged to the militia and or they left good jobs to join up and did it out of patriotism. Private, a man named Private Robert Christopherson said, it never occurred to us that we were going to get paid. He just did it because it would be fun. But others joined up. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I think a lot of them did. (laughs) Yeah, they just thought, oh, well, everybody else is doing it. Let's go, boys. Yeah, exactly. But there were others that joined up because they would get paid. And they got paid a whole dollar a day which was the same pay as the lowest paid laborers, but at least here, meals and boarding were included. Right. And like I mentioned before, in 1913, Canada had hit that mini recession and there were quite a few unemployed people. So getting that paycheck uh, was important. And then relatively speaking against the other, even though we were the triple entente, but our allied nations, we were paid well. That's not being paid well. <laughs> I guess comparatively speaking. Comparative they were. <laughs> you can go die and we'll give you your dollar. <laughs> totally. That's not funny. But no, you know. Not at all. <laughs> By the way, we do like to laugh and have a good time and, and en- enjoy why we're learning history, but we understand, you know, that this is a bit of a somber topic. Yeah. Yeah, we've also had a drink, so. (laughs) That too. (laughs) (laughs) So less than a month after Canada entered war, the Minister of Militia, Sam Hughes, acquired land just north of Quebec City and established Camp Valcartier, the new training ground for soldiers. 400 local contractors were hired to turn this barren land into a camp with all necessary utilities, railway lines, and roads. Shortly after construction began, Hughes boasted to Parliament that the camp was in good order and was already quartering 5,000 soldiers. But when the first wave of recruits came in, they will tell you a different story, especially when they were handed a hammer and told to start building. 
So they basically arrived and nothing was done. <laughs> <laughs> well, now they're going to get a dollar a day to build something. There you go. So Sam Hughes was a conservative Methodist that launched his career as a member of parliament after establishing himself, establishing himself um, as a respected proprietor and editor of his local newspaper and then turned lieutenant colonel in the Canadian militia. Now, Hughes was an outspoken and brazen man that did not allow for protocol to get in the way of his ambitions. So prior to the outbreak of the Boer War, he offered the British Secretary of State for the colonies a small group of volunteer soldiers for foreign service without the authorization of his commanding officers or the government for that matter. (laughs) (laughs) He just thought he was in charge. Totally. So as punishment, General Hutton, the commander of the Canadian militia, refused him command in a contingent headed for South Africa. In retaliation, he launched a verbal assault on Hutton and a number of published letters. Because that's a way to get that's what you how want. you do it, yeah. So obviously Sam was denied the opportunity altogether to go to the war. And he was devastated. He groveled. I like cried at Hutton's feet, begging for forgiveness until he was permitted to travel with the militia as a civilian. That's what he should have done in the beginning. <laughs> he should have just kept his mouth shut is what he should have done. <laughs> uh, but being the opportunist, he found his way back into the militia as a railway staff officer. And he even worked his way up to a commander of a small unit where he was successful in warding off pockets of resistance. Now, never one to be accused of humility, he wrote home to the local papers boasting about his victories in the field, while at the same time criticizing his British commanders. And this eventually led to his demissal. No surprise. (laughs) Man, his inflated ego led him to believe that he had been wrongfully dismissed and that his heroic actions were deserving of the Victoria Cross. Wow, this guy is. I'm just trying to set. I'm trying to set the stage for you, so you know who is this guy, this minister of militia. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, despite his aptitude for vulgarity, he retained his seat as an MP, and for many years, he supported Robert Borden's rise to leadership in the Conservative Party, and as the Prime Minister of Canada, to which he was rewarded with the coveted position of Minister Militia in 1911. Now, Hughes largely ignored mobilization plans as war broke out, as he preferred to be more um, impulsive or improvise plans. You don't say. You don't say. And this obviously (laughs) caused a bureaucratic nightmare. And his plans for Valcarce were no different. At Valcarce, Hughes paraded around like an emperor on his mighty steed, taking interest in the most trivial of details, including like training techniques. Like this man was still stuck in the mindset of of the old glory days of the Boer War. And he had soldiers engage in sword training, even though the soldiers would not be carrying swords. He sounds like a good guy. And needless to say, the officers were not impressed with his presence at Valcarche. <laughs> uh, but Hughes was also equally ineffective at pure- procuring proper clothing and equipment. 
Hughes and his committee didn't shy away from patronages, meaning that many of his buddies made a fortune from government contracts. So just to give you some perspective on his level of decision-making power, he helped establish a billion dollars worth of contracts for the manufacturing of weapons, ammunitions, like uniform ships, like you name it. He had a fair bit of control in this in establishing <laughs> the mobilization of Canada going to war. But I just want to touch on a couple of the big issues that had the greatest impact on soldiers and which kind of eventually led to his downfall. So first, Hughes was a staunch advocate of the Ross rifle. Now, long story short, the Canadians uh, adopted the Ross rifle during the Boer War because they couldn't secure enough Lee Enfield rifles from Britain. Now, in later years, Hughes pushed heavily for the Ross rifle to be adopted as the official gun for the Canadian militia. Now, the problem is, is the Ross rifle, it was too long and heavy and it jammed easily and the bayonets were often popping off when you were shooting your gun. <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of left Canadians to play a bit of a game of whack-a-mole in the battlefield when they were retrieving their bayonet, except they were playing the role of the mole. So obviously that's pretty problematic. Canon Frederick Scott, who's a military chaplain, said, the Ross rifle is the greatest crime ever perpetrated against the soldier boys and their loved ones. The blood of Canadians wasn't worth the filthy gold that somebody made out of it. Wow. So I bring, I bring this up because this was a huge scandal in Canada. Obviously, when you're, gun, you're sending your boys out to war and their guns not working, that's a problem. Now, I don't want to give the Ross rifle a like a bad name it was oh, i think you already did <laughs> it sounds like it did it to himself too uh the ross rifle was a good gun for the right purposes like for example snipers thought it was a great gun it was great for that purpose it just wasn't good for infantrymen and speaking of which my husband he bought me a ross rifle bayonet for christmas that's where your bayonet's from that's cool. Yes. And I was so excited. And then when I was reading this, I, re I realized that they they got rid of the Ross rifle eventually in 1916 and traded it off with some British weaponry. And mine was made in 1917. So it probably never went to war. It's a, it's a period piece. People it's are, still cool. Some people might be thinking, man, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> No, it just means that your husband knows your interests. Totally. I was pretty excited about it. Yeah. But uh, anyways, <laughs> while Hughes was boasting about the superiority of Canadian equipment, uniforms were literally disintegrating off the backs of soldiers. Within 10 days, soldiers' boots would start falling apart. And why did they fall apart, you ask? Well, they weren't waterproof. And why weren't they waterproof? Instead of using leather, some manufacturers substituted it with cardboard. <laughs> if you want to talk about a scandal, <laughs> talk about sending oh your troops in cardboard boots. Oh, my God. Corruption <laughs> is finest. I couldn't imagine. Uh, You're really worked up about this. Can you imagine, though? No, you, that would be horrible. You, you sign up to volunteer for the army, and they're, they can't even give you proper clothing, for crying they out loud. They give you a cardboard and a kilt. 
Yeah. Maybe the kilts were better quality. They probably came from Scotland. Hopefully those didn't disintegrate too. Hopefully not. Oh, God. Anyway, I know I'm going to drag this on a bit, but I just wanted to talk about one more of the more ludicrous decisions he made. There's more? There's more. Oh, there's tons more. There's a whole pamphlet (laughs) about the scandals over the acquisition of equipment in World War I in Canada. But um, (laughs) Hughes had decided to purchase what they called shield shovels. So a shield shovel is just a regular shovel, but it has a two to three inch diameter hole in it. Um, Now, according to Hughes, this shovel was basically living in the year 3021 because not only was it a shovel, but you could stick your rifle through the hole and use it as a shield. But the problem was, is the shield was not bulletproof. (laughs) It wasn't particularly effective, let alone the, the shovel wasn't sharp enough to actually dig anything. Oh, wow. And the government ordered 25,000 of these shovels and not a single one was used overseas and said it was sold off as scrap metal at a loss, um, sold off to an American company. So They should have gotten rid of this guy before the Boer War. I, that's the part I keep asking myself. I'm like, how did he get to this point? I would like to know. <laughs> he must have had some dirt on somebody. I don't know. I think he was just so ambitious that people were like, all right, fine, stop bugging me. <laughs> That's the only thing I could think of. Anyway, so what's the point of this whole story? The point is that our Canadian soldiers entered into the war unprepared and ill-equipped. And the failings of our government for the soldiers became evident at Valcart J under the decision-making of Sam Hughes. Now... We're probably not going to talk about Sam Hughes much more because he essentially fell from grace, as I kind of mentioned before. But I do want to point out, I think he played an important role in unifying the Canadian Expeditionary Force. And maybe I'll touch on that or you'll touch on that. I'm not sure. But overall, the general general sentiment I have of this man, that he was insane. And this was the word used by his peers at the time. Scathing review by <laughs> Ashley Lacombe. I wow. Find, I couldn't find any positive thing about this. <laughs> I feel bad ripping someone apart. I don't even know. But that's what the no, history okay. books say, folks. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so after are you you're done. Oh, I'm done. Review. I'm done. I'm yeah. done. <laughs> so after dealing with all Hughes's crap at Valcartier, the Canadians crossed the Atlantic in October of 1914, and it was the largest contingent crossing of the Atlantic ever. So when the Canadians finally arrived at port in Plymouth, instead of Southampton, um, and they switched ports because there were reports of German submarines in the English Channel, They had to wait a couple days to disembark, but when they did, the people of Plymouth lined up the docks and there was cheering and singing and handing out cigarettes and drinks and everybody was really excited about it. But the Canadians were really eager to start fighting. They wanted to get off that boat and just basically run to France. Across the channel, of course. Um, 
But after the reroute and the bright welcoming, they still had a seven-hour train ride, and then they had to march eight to 12 miles to the Salisbury Plain for extra training, which was completely unwelcome because as they were waiting on the ship, rumors spread that the Germans were in full retreat and they might surrender before the Canadians even set foot in England. Oh, really? I never read that. Yeah, they were they were raring to go and they, they didn't want to miss it because they were the patriotic ones that signed up right away. So right. They wanted to get on it. Um, and so just for reference, I don't know much of English geography, but the Salisbury Plain is kind of around Stonehenge. That's right. That I read area. they walked past Stonehenge. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the area that they had to get to from Plymouth. So before the training began, the Canadians were given a week's leave so the camp could actually be prepared for them because it wasn't ready yet. And because they had spent such a long time on the boat and it was just terrible. But this week of tra- or this week's leave started the Canadians' reputation. <laughs> this doesn't sound good. <laughs> During the week's leave, the Canadians earned this rowdy reputation by frequenting the pubs in the nearby towns and going as far as London and just getting drunk and getting into a whole bunch of trouble. And uh, Private Roy McPhee, I think, um, he was worried about his fellow Canadians and he said, they think of nothing but drinking and getting into all the trouble they can. (laughs) (laughs) There was some... Go ahead. I was going to say, I can kind of understand. They're coming from Canada. A lot of them are probably farm boys. They're in the big city, man. This is exciting. We're going to go have some fun. (laughs) I read a quote. I didn't write it down and I should have. But it was some quote about how an English woman couldn't walk past an alley without a Canadian peeing in it. Ugh. (laughs) Yeah. There's some pride so, for you. Oh, yeah. So they, the civilians in England were pretty taken aback by these rowdy Canadians. So Colonel Arthur Curry, which we talk about in another episode. That's right. Was pretty appalled and embarrassed. And he sent men to London to investigate all these rumors of their brash behavior. And he didn't want to get, or he didn't want the Canadians to have this horrible reputation right off the bat. So um, they investigated it and they called everybody back and they took away the leave privileges of some of them that were really bad, but they got them under control again. Um, So once the troops were reeled back into the planes, training started and the contingent was divided into four camps in tents across five miles. And when the camp was set up, they said it was beautifully warm October weather and it was nice and they loved it there. But then soon it turned into an unusually and exceptionally wet, cold, muddy English winter. And the men were in their unheated canvas tents and there was no reprieve from the conditions. And they were wearing cardboard boots. I was going to say, good thing they had those boots. Yeah, those <laughs> did them really well in England. They said that they were so happy to get English boots after theirs fell apart in the rain. Because the English ones were actually made of leather. <laughs> you think so, that would be obvious. Well, Jeez. yeah. <laughs> so they were supposed to have huts built by November... But there were shortages of labor, of course, because 
all the English men were training to go to war or were already at war. So the private contractors couldn't meet the demands of the government and couldn't get these built. So the soldiers were actually commissioned to start building. But they did receive extra pay and an extra ration of a quarter pound of meat a day. Hmm. But they weren't there to build. They were, build, they were there to train. So they were kind of anxious about this and they didn't really want to do it. And by Christmas, there were still 11,000 men sleeping in tents. And the conditions threatened the health of the soldiers before they could even get to the front. So a small workforce kept building, but they called in a billeting request to the civilians in the surrounding villages. So they first go and pee on all these street corners and get in drunken trouble <laughs> in front of these civilians. And then they say, can we stay with you? <laughs> but they did get billeted. I don't know if the English really had a choice. Probably not. So from the cold weather and the cramped conditions in the huts that actually did get built, there were 39 cases of meningitis, and that turned into 28 fatalities. Ooh. And there were 4,000 hospital admissions, but 1,249 of those were from venereal diseases. <laughs> so they had a lot of fun in that first week. I think that's a common theme throughout the war, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it started really It started early. really early. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. So these poor mud-soaked soldiers really didn't get great training when they were there, especially the artillery training. It was terrible because they had such a tiny, terrible artillery range. And they, their training was really heavily focused on speedy rifle fire and reloading. Um, and the rifle range there was terrible as well. It was way better at Valcartier. Because the British were known for their fast firing and reloading, so the Canadians needed to do that too. Mm. But the con conditions at Salisbury were so bad overall that... Uh, the Australian and New Zealand troops that were being sent over were actually rerouted to go train in Egypt instead of Salisbury. Right, I heard that. Yeah, and uh, somebody, I don't know who it was, requested that the Canadians be moved to Egypt as well from Salisbury, and they said no. <laughs> I can imagine why, but that was denied. Yeah. Um, I found actually something really interesting. If you go to a website called canadianletters.ca, you can search Salisbury Plain and find letters that soldiers sent back to their family and whoever, you know, whoever's donated the letters. And uh, I found one that I really liked and it was pretty encompassing of the whole atmosphere there. And it was to, it, they don't know who the soldier was. He was anonymous, but it was to a Mr. McKenzie. And it said, and then we pick up a Toronto newspaper saying that the men on Salisbury Plain are well, happy and comfortable. The hospitals are full of poor beggars dying by scores every week, and very few men in this contingent, but will have rheumatic twinges in the later years to remind them of the awful winter of 14 to 15 on Salisbury Plain. The silly country is flooded, and you will probably see illustrations of the way people in Salisbury City itself are wading knee-deep in water. As for being happy, the majority of us are too young to remain downhearted for very long, and as for comfort, he leaves six blank lines with lines drawn through them. The above blanks express our solid comfort. Ah. However, no one really knows when we go, so we live in hopes and mud. 
it's really kind of yeah that's quite descriptive. Telling. i love reading old letters so if you want to go to that website it's it's got a really a lot of really cool yeah letters. i haven't i haven't seen that i'll have to check that out yeah we'll put it in the in the sources in the show notes here and you guys can all check it out awesome so finally, in February 1915, the Canadians left Salisbury and made their way to France. So by the time the 1st Division was deployed to France, the battle lines had been drawn. Now, long before the war had begun, the Germans developed a strategy for engaging in a true front war with Russia and France called the Schlieffen Plan. Now, under ideal conditions, Germany planned to invade France through Belgium and encircle Paris within six weeks. Then they would turn their sights on the slower mobilizing Russian forces. And really, this was the plan they stuck to, and they had considerable success with it until the Germans pulled away some of their forces just east of Paris. Now, the British and the French capitalized on this strategic blunder and successfully pushed the German line back north. Then throughout the months of September and October, in a bit to outflank each other, the French and Germans engaged in a series of skirmishes headed towards the North Sea in Belgium. Now, obviously, when you reach a big body of water, there is nowhere left to go. So the Germans dug in, like quite literally, and over 760 kilometers of trenches stretched between the North Sea and the Swiss Alps on the Western Front. Now, with that, the stage is set and Canada would prepare for its first battle at Ypres. Thanks for listening. Our sources and show notes are on our website at whataboutthecanadians.com and you can check us out on Facebook and Instagram at whataboutthecanadians. Catch us next time when we're talking about the Battle of Ypres.